This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Alina Wheeler about her fascination with branding and corporate identities and why she has spent her career educating businesses about the process of branding. There were some really, really smart people, CEOs who were brilliant, who were innovative, who really just didn't understand branding, and they were embarrassed by it. Here's Debbie Millman. The words brand and branding come from the practice of singeing a cow's hide with a hot iron stamp in order to tell one rancher's herd from another. It's easy to forget these humble origins, but in the world of products, services, and corporate identity, branding still serves the same old purpose. What makes me distinguishable from you? Alina Wheeler is a branding consultant who describes her business as managing perception. In her books, she demystifies branding and the branding process. Her latest book is called Brand Atlas, Branding Intelligence Made Visible. And we'll talk all about that and then some in today's interview. Welcome to Design Matters, Alina. Thank you. What a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. So I understand that you are the daughter of a sea captain. (gasps) What a researcher you are. (laughs) Tell us about that. Yes. My father was a sea captain, and he was an extraordinary man who was a great storyteller. And I adored him. And more than anything else, he inspired me to be who I am now. So did you spend a lot of time at sea with him? No. In fact, I did travel to Yugoslavia with him on his ship once, but it wasn't until I was 18 years old. So during my childhood, he really traveled around the world nine months of the year, and we communicated via letters. And then there was a very intensive three months where he would regale me with stories about what happened in the various ports around the world. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Now, I also understand that you didn't speak English until you were about six? Yes. What was your first language? My first language was Polish. This week, I actually had the most thrilling moment because my book, Designing Brand Identity, has just been published in Polish. How wonderful. Yes, yes. So that was thrilling. I wish my dad were here to read it. I do too. So if you didn't speak English until you were six, Mm -hmm. how do you think that experience of coming to English as a second language impacted and influenced you in terms of how you view the world through language? I care very much about clarity. I care very much about understanding Because in the beginning, when I first came to school, I didn't understand anything. My mother basically traveled with me through my whole childhood, and then I was thrown into this American school. So the notion of not understanding is actually very frightening to me. And I think when I hear any kind of foreign accent, it's very comforting to me now, almost like a cradle being rocked in the cradle. So I'm I'm very uh, aware of the fact that English wasn't my first language, and writing is actually very difficult for me. You're kidding, given how prolific you are as a writer. (laughs) So if somebody were to ask you what you do for a living, Alina, what would you say? I would pause. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and then I would say, um, my business is strategic imagination. Really? Yes. And yes. so so why the pause? <laughs> <laughs> because I I do um, so many different kinds of things. That was why it was hard I for would, me to I even I would um, kind imagine. of pause and say, well, which one do I really want to talk about? But I'm really fascinated by identity. I'm really fascinated by how people and organizations and communities express who they are. So anything that I can do around that, you know, it's why I wrote Designing Brand Identity. It's it's why I wrote Brand Atlas. It's why I do the kind of consulting that I do. So is this something that you always wanted to do? Did you always have a fascination with brands? It started in the second grade at the Sacred Heart of Jesus when they asked us to color code our souls. Black if we had sinned a lot. White if we had been pure. Red if we had just sinned a little. And I think it was at that point that I had a fascination with color coding and brand architecture. <laughs> what color did you code your own soul? It was a checkered pattern. <laughs> really? I love that. I love that. And of course, you didn't color in the lines, no, I'm hoping. Although, no. what, what lines for the soul? What Did they actually create a picture of the soul that you had to Well, there was a diagram. In? There was a diagram of the soul and each day had a soul. <laughs> Wow. I That's know. progressive it's, for a second grader. I think it's bizarre, actually. <laughs> and I actually understand a lot more now yes. about why you decided to do work <laughs> in identity. So let's go back to what you said right. about your title or how you right. would describe yourself. How would you describe strategic imagination? Strategic imagination is really aligning the goals of an organization, whether they're business goals or community goals, with creativity. So using creativity to solve real problems. So back when you were in the second grade and you were becoming aware of dimensionalizing the aspects of a soul, <laughs> right? <laughs> how did that then become the entry into your ultimate career path? How did that idea about identity then become something about corporations or culture? Mm -hmm. Actually, uh, many, many years later, I ended up going to the University of the Arts, and I was an illustration major. And I didn't even know about design, if you can believe that. So I was an illustration major because I was very interested in telling stories. And it was not until the last semester of the last year that I was introduced to design. You know, sometimes art colleges are silos or they were in the 60s where the sculptors didn't talk to yeah, the painters, absolutely. didn't talk to the photographers. No one talked to art education and certainly the designers never talked to the illustrators. So I was very lucky in my fourth year to have a teacher, Stephen Tarantel, who introduced me to the idea of design. And then a few years after that, I was introduced to Joel Katz. And he was a designer in the very formal sense, you know, studied at Yale, understood all of the issues. And he and I ended up forming a partnership and called Katz-Wheeler. And that was your first brand consultancy, so to speak. Yes, yes, because... 
we did a lot of different kinds of projects, but a lot of them had to do with identity. And for me, whether you were doing an annual report or a book or an information system, for me, it all came down to issues of identity. Who are you? Who needs to know? Why should they care? And how will they find out? So had you not had that experience, it's very likely that you would have been an illustrator. Yeah. Who knows what would have happened? Or a sea captain. (laughs) (laughs) Telling stories. (laughs) Right. Right. So what made you decide to actually pursue branding as a career? I think when I looked at everything, that was really the, the common thread, regardless of what we were working on. It was really about who was that organization and what stood in the way of a project being successful. And often what stood in the way, and this was a moment of epiphany for me, that when the process was successful, when people around the table respected each other and there were clear goals and a clear mandate, the project was always a success. And what I realized early on is that if I could develop a process, a disciplined process, I could accelerate the success of almost any initiative. Your book, Designing Brand Identity, reinvented the idea of a marketing textbook, and it really seeks to demystify branding and shed light on the range of tools used by people in the branding business, Mm -hmm. experienced practitioners. And you have really set the bar for marketing textbooks since the publication of of your book. But why did you originally decide to write Designing Brand Identity? I had to have it on my shelf. It didn't exist. So the world was filled with all these brilliant tomes on marketing and branding, David Ocker, Philip Kotler, you know. And then at the other side, there were all these exquisite design books, you know, books about trademarks, great books on naming, books on information systems. But there was nothing out there that was really about the process. How do we revitalize the brand? And, you know, the thing that frustrated me is there were things that I thought were absolute, but nobody talked about critical success factors. Nobody talked about decision-making. If you're not on top of the decision-making process, no matter how brilliant the work that you've done has been, you know... It's living in an isolation, in an isolation tank. And then I found that there were some really, really smart people, CEOs of organizations who were brilliant, who were innovative, who really just didn't understand branding. And they were embarrassed by it. And they would close the door. And they would say, you know, Lena, I don't really get it. And the other thing is, you know, all these brand consultancies, well, not everyone can afford the large brand consultancies. What about the rest of the world? You know, so I wanted to develop a process that worked for you if you were an entrepreneur in a garage, like a Jeff Bezos, you know, imagining the future, or if you were a mid-sized company, or if you were a nonprofit, or if you were a consumer brand, because at the end of the day, I feel that it's the same process. 
So talk about that process. Yours was really the first book to deconstruct branding yes. into this yes. universal, disciplined, yes. five-phase yes. methodology. Well, first of all, I'm a big believer in one page. <laughs> <laughs> so what I mean by that is if you can communicate something in one page, you're going to be able to talk to a lot of people who have short attention spans or who have busy agendas like CEOs or the board. And like all just of about that. everybody right, right now. Right. And I wanted something that had clear decision points. So I developed a five-phase process. The first page is research and analysis. You're a sleuth. You're a shrink. You know, you're, you're interviewing. You're doing audits. You're looking at all the existing research. You're establishing the goals. And in phase two, you achieve agreement about who you are, what you stand for, how you're different, why you're irreplaceable. And if there's any kind of naming, that happens in that phase. And then at the end of the phase where there's agreement about the brand, that's when you do a creative brief. So the phase three is what I call designing identity. You know, the designers are ready. You know, they're at the edge of their seat and they're designing the future. They're playing back and they're saying, this is what the future could look like. So at the end of the third phase, designing identity, you are achieving agreement on basically what is it going to look like? What is it going to feel like? What's, what's the experience going to be? So basically the criteria for success. Yes, yes. Then the fourth phase, there's agreement and then there's kind of a deep dive. I call it creating touch points. So you're going into legal. You're creating the whole look and feel and you're in effect, you're creating the language. And then the fifth phase, and that's when everybody is like ready. When can we have our business cards? You know, when <laughs> right. can we launch? When can we send out the blessed email? You know, the fifth phase is Mount Everest, right? That's managing assets. So the fifth phase is when you're creating guidelines so that everyone can participate in brand building. You're doing an internal launch to make sure that everyone in the organization understands why. Why are we doing this? How are things going to be different? Why is this good news? You know, and then there's the external launch. So five phases, and they sound extremely logical and right. quite intuitive in many ways. Yes. How does something like the Gap logo fiasco happen? Oh, well, it was a fiasco on so many different levels. Um, I'm not privy to the inside conversations. Uh, clearly, they were not my client. Um, my sense is that they didn't do their due diligence, didn't do phase one, <laughs> mm. you know, where they were doing that audit. You know, so you do a competitive audit. You do an internal audit. And you when know, you say audit, what are you looking at when you're auditing? What are you auditing? When we do an audit, we're looking at um, voice, we're looking at all of the expressions of the brand, you know, kind of back in history. We're looking at the evolution of the brand, the history of where they've been. A competitive audit, I mean, you're looking at um, best practices, sometimes within your industry. And then another part of the audit for me is living inside of the customer. Uh -huh. So I How love do you do to that? do a room you know, where it's the customer's world and you experience what they're experiencing. So 
I don't know what went wrong. Clearly, they, I don't think they were listening to their customers. They weren't listening to the marketplace. And, you know, certainly in terms of what happened, it, it was just frightening to me. It was frightening and I was angry because it was one of those things, regardless of whatever conversation I was in, you know, like with a, uh, a midsize engineering firm, well, we don't want to have the gap experience. So it was an experience that I feel affected everyone in branding. I feel that any of these retreats that right. brands have now when they mm-hmm. come out with something new and then immediately recall right. them, yes. it is bad for anybody in the branding right. business or the design business because people then become afraid of change. Right. But I was so surprised by the reaction, not that I felt that the logo was particularly good or right. bad, the new logo, right. but I also didn't feel that the old logo was particularly good right. or bad. And I couldn't understand the brouhaha over what really felt like a a fairly nondescript logo to begin with going to another fairly nondescript logo. And so I I wonder if you have any insight as to why there was such a strong and and almost sort of mob-like mentality about what happened. Well, they had a lot of brand equity and they didn't look at their brand equity. And again, I really hate when someone, you know, sends out a symbol because you very rarely experience the symbol by itself. For me, if you're going to send something out, you send it out within its context and you send it out with excitement and pride and and you do an interesting launch. Well, I, I do think that any yeah. company with a major identity of any type yes. will need to now have some sort of launch strategy yes. because otherwise I think they leave themselves open to this, again, barrage. Yeah, the Absolutely. mob mentality. Mob mentality, you're yeah, right. It's really incredible. Right. But it's interesting because I remember years ago, back before Diet Pepsi was right. light blue, Yes, there was dark blue for mm-hmm. Pepsi and white for yes. Diet Pepsi. And I remember the first time I ever saw the Mm-hmm. light blue diet Pepsi yes. can. And oh, I spent my whole life in branding mm-hmm. and in packaging. Yeah. And when I saw it, I was really sort of taken aback mm-hmm. by it. And I, I didn't know if I liked it or not. But more important than that, I felt uncomfortable with it. Yes, And it was that discomfort that was really fascinating. Yes. Why did I feel uncomfortable about this change? Forget whether I liked it or right. didn't like it. And I think a lot of people yeah. have that sense of dread or this foreboding and mm-hmm. seeing something new that they can't quite explain that then somehow backpedals into fear and, and anger. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why that happens. I think because one of the functions of brands is assurance. Mm. And you're assured that you've made the right choice. And assurance also has to do with familiarity. So if I'm walking down the street and I see you and I recognize you, it's a happy moment. And I think the same thing is true, whether you're in the supermarket or you're on the web. It's this notion of acknowledgement and familiarity and assurance. I want to talk a little bit about your opinion about why Apple is so coveted. Do you think it is design? Do you think it's technology? Do you think it's something very specific about the way that they brand their products? I think it's everything. I mean, for me, the best brands are irreplaceable. So number one, today, I can't imagine my life 
without Apple. And certainly I'm 62. I mean, a lot of my life <laughs> was lived with before the iPad and the iPod and all of that. But they understand me. They anticipate what I need. They delight me. And, you know, I love going into the Apple store. I mean, it's such a, it's kind of beyond the cafe experience in terms of the energy and certainly leveraging design. Almost no one does it better. You know, I'm, occasionally I teach and I, I always say, ask everyone, well, what's your favorite brand? And I say, can you tell me some that are not Apple? Because every conversation that you're in with every client, every student, that's the best practice right now. And I, I want to challenge everyone to come up with an equal. Well, it's so interesting that you say that, especially given the way in which you've tried to forward the methodologies yes. of branding. Yes. But one of the things that I find so ironic about so many clients that mm -hmm. covet the Apple visual language yes. is how reluctant they actually are to utilize it. Yes. So it actually isn't all that difficult to imagine taking a lot of stuff off the pack and letting mm -hmm. the brand be hero or the product be hero. And yet so many clients and so many brands mm -hmm. are actually loath to do that. Yeah. Why do you think there are so few companies that actually have used the path that Apple has taken to try to do some of the right. same kinds of things with design? First of all, I think it takes a lot of courage to step outside of your comfort zone or certainly if you've been successful to give up what has made you successful. So the next thing I really want to study is courage. And the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about because I've been a client recently, it's really hard to be a client. You know, it's so hard. I don't I don't think I ever realized how hard it was. What was hard about it? Well, you know, kind of the the voices about my designer is telling me you know, I have to say less. I have to let go of this stuff. But I feel so passionate about it. I don't have the courage to let go. You know, so that's why I believe in the process. I believe that if designers build trust with their clients, that their clients will find their apple. And what I believe is that in every corporation, there is this extraordinary brand that some of them have not yet discovered, have not yet sent out into the world. I want to talk to you about a couple of quotes from your okay. book that I've pulled out that mm -hmm. I really love. And I just mm -hmm. wanted to know if you can elaborate mm -hmm. on some of these really marvelous lines mm -hmm. for our listeners. You say that the best identities yes. advance a brand. Yes. How? Well, again, brands are about an emotional connection. They connect to your, your mind and your heart. So brand identity for me is tangible. Brand identity is designed. You can see it. You can smell it. You can watch it. You can see it move. So the notion of design when it when an experience is designed, when a brand is designed to be authentic, it absolutely advances the brand because it makes it easy. You know, it just makes it easy for the customer to understand, 
to buy, to choose. Now, is it possible, though, to design something to be authentic? Don't you have to be authentic? Yeah, you have to be authentic. <laughs> you have to be authentic. You can't fake it. Absolutely. Um, it, it, authenticity is this foundation. We know who we are. And then, you know, I say to people, unless you spend the time articulating who you are, what's important to you, no key messages, no look and feel, no uh, logos, none of this is possible unless you have this foundation. I often think that people use brands now to project an image of what they want to be yes, as opposed to what they feel that they are. You know, we use brands now to transform an otherwise wobbly interior mm-hmm. somehow. Well, I am fascinated right now by um, personal branding. And then, yes, I, I think it's important whether it's a person or a product or a service to really talk about aspirations. Who do I want to be? <laughs> You know, or who do I think I am that that no one else knows that I am? And, you know, I think a lot of businesses start off with a vision and then sometimes they get disconnected from why are we doing this? You know, so to be back in touch with your aspirations and your wildest dreams, I think that's important. Last quote from the book, and then I want to start talking about your new book. Yes. You say, even the most mundane transactions can be turned into memorable experiences. Yes. That's um, Joe Pine and Jim Gilmore. They write a lot about experience. And places like Ing Direct are kind of reinventing the idea of a bank. So going to a bank, a bank doesn't have to be a mundane experience. It can be a a cafe. It can be a place where you meet your friends. Uh, The Geek Squad, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, American Girl. So this notion of uh, it's not about the features and benefits anymore. It's what kind of experience are you giving your customers? So clearly Apple, um, Jim Gilmore said something uh, the other day. He said, you know, walking into an Apple store is like walking into a, the inside of a, an iPad. You know, <laughs> so I thought that was a wonderful thing. So it's the experience. And, and, you know, so much has become the same. You know, so how can you provide something that is truly original that sparks an interest, a feeling, a place to go. It's an experience. So talk to us about your new book, Brand Um, Atlas. My new book, Brand Atlas. Debbie, did you know that in 1570, the first atlas was created by collaboration, and it was um, Mercator-inspired someone named Ortelius to do the first atlas. And, you know, uh, I actually maps, didn't know that <laughs> maps used to be like as big as this wall. So if you were a sea captain, you know, you couldn't take that all. So he said, make a book of maps, help people understand where they are so they can figure out where they want to go. So Brand Atlas is a resource for people to help them navigate the brand landscape. So it's um, full page color diagrams that illuminate concepts, ideas. So the world right now, you know, the world is filled with software-generated diagrams visualizing data. We wanted to 
do a book where we were visualizing concepts, ideas, processes, and then just a very little text, 80 words, right? Little bigger than a tweet, a call to action, you know, thoughts for consideration. And the, the book will be out soon? Yes, it's going to uh, be out in the end of March, and it's going to be a real book. Heft. Uh, 144 pages. It can be read in half an hour. And it's not for the director of marketing. It's a book for the rest of everyone that, you know, would never read a tome on social networks or brand measurement. But needs to understand those fundamentals and how they relate to marketplace dynamics. Well, it sounds fascinating, Alina, yeah. and I can't wait to read yeah. it. Alina, thanks for joining me on Design Matters. Thank you so much. You can find out more about Alina Wheeler on her website, alinawheeler.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.